So there are some moments, some moments like I had last Sunday night that just kind of stop you right in your tracks, almost take your breath away, and then the next moment make you very, very conscious of your breath and how precious and sacred it is. Now, as primed for this moment, I must tell you by The Walking Dead. And if you know The Walking Dead, it's AMC's sort of post-zombie apocalypse scarathon. Very moving also in times. And this mini half-season ended, I'm not going to show another new one until into February, with a moment that I won't tell you anything about because I wouldn't want to ruin it for you having started watching it. But it's a profoundly sad, moving, heartbreaking moment. And I immediately turned to my wife after that and said, it is going to be hours before I'm going to be able to get to sleep tonight. And it was. And then it was some hours more because I was kind of reviewing the day, you know, just sort of scrolling through my iPhone and taking a look at some of the news of the day I might have missed. I came upon a link from a blogger that I read very regularly. And the title was simply with a small link underneath it, When Words Fail. And it took me to another link of a blogger that I have maybe read three or four times in my life. And in it, he described that he went to sleep the night before with his wife, a name that I had never heard before in my life, Kimberly Joyner. Kimberly Joyner. Mother of their children age three and one barely six months old. And Kimberly Joyner died in her sleep that night. No expectation, no warning. Just didn't wake up. And perhaps it was the fact that I saw Kimberly Joyner's age. 41. My age. My wife, who was sleeping in the next room's age, just a couple years older than my younger daughter and her two kids, about the same age as these children who didn't have a mom. And then I thought about all the people I know about that same age. And I, yes, I recognize intellectually, of course, that there are surprises every single day in so many people's lives. But there was just something in that moment, that surprise, that sadness, when the normal image I have of life completely seemed to collapse and I was in touch with something very real that, in fact, is always there. As I stayed awake through most of that night, we're talking I didn't get to sleep till about five o'clock and it wasn't typical insomnia. I just was seized by what had seized me. I thought of two things. One, Steve Jobs' wonderful address to the graduating class of Stanford University in 2005. Just a little while before he had received the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer that he would survive with six more years until he died this past summer. And he said these words to those young people. He said almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment, all fear of failure. These things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. 
Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. I'll repeat that. He didn't, but I will. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. And then some words that remind me of Steve Jobs' words, even if they were written hundreds of years before from the great Persian poet Rumi. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth between the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. What about Steve Jobs and Rumi are imploring us to do? Occupy our lives. Enter into the heart of our existence. Let ourselves be spared the falseness of our illusions. The image we have of our lives as either safe or sound or any other way that we might have an image of life that truly does not get to the heart of who we really are. It might be that persona that you put forward to the world that you project and protect as if your very life depended upon it. But both Rumi and Steve Jobs tell us your life doesn't depend upon it. Image is not everything. Perhaps it is nothing. In those moments that break down our normal defenses, our normal ego defenses, we can see that living beyond the image of our lives is a choice we can always make, even if it is painful. And we see that, in fact, it is the best choice to make. I remember the words of Reverend William Sloan Coffin, who especially at this gift-giving time of the year, I really like to remember He said the smallest package in the world is someone who's all wrapped up in themselves. See, that doesn't have to be a harsh thing or a mean thing. It's just saying that sometimes for all of us, our image of ourselves is too small and the life that is within us will not be able to get out if we think that that image is a solid final thing rather than something that is, in fact, much more fluid and flexible. Sometimes maintaining an image of a life can even cost us our lives. I remember these words from a few weeks back from Tatum O'Neill reflecting on the life of her friend, Michael Jackson. I mean, both these young people who became stars before they were even people and so had to live inside of that image before they had any authentic self-knowledge. She said what killed Michael I'm paraphrasing a little here. What killed Michael was that he and so many other people were Invested in the image of his life and not the reality of his life. Now, this can be a deeply painful thing to recognize that we can be trapped by the images we hold of ourselves and the images we hold of other people. But I have to tell you as well, and many of you know this already, it can be a wonderfully liberating thing when we are not focused of the image of ourselves. One small lesson from my life. Some of you are aware that I returned during the month of October from an outward bound excursion. And it was a time of such intense, wonderful mindfulness, but not easiness. And I recognized about five days into that eight-day trip that one of the signature contributing factors was this. I had not looked in a mirror 
in five days. Actually, it would be the entire eight days. And what did I do before I came out here today? I looked in the mirror back in the teacher's lounge over there. I make sure the zipper zippered. Got to make sure there's no dirt on me. Now, the thing is, I've made a fool of myself up here unintentionally many times. So what if my zipper wasn't zipped? I'm naked anyway, as Steve Jaws says. See, it can be a wonderfully amazing thing to recognize that the image is not who we are because sometimes, and I experience this on my outward bound course, the more conscious we are is directly related to how minimally self-conscious we are. We are all of us so much more than the mirror and the image of our lives that we would wish at times to project and protect. We are so much more than that image in any moment of our lives. One of my favorite stories about this is this young guy here, this figure. You'll show him, Eric Cartman. Now, some of you are South Park fans, and yes, if you are a South Park fan, you know that he is a ludicrously profane, obscenely bigoted young little man, and sometimes also hysterically funny as well, too. But I'm going to tell you a story in his life when he recognized that it's just an image that he portrays of himself because of this other character here, Eric and Wendy Testerberger. What they're doing in this episode of South Park from well over a decade ago is they are preparing for a debate. And one of the things that Wendy admits to in a very chaste way, especially for South Park, is that she is developing. You can see they're about to share a plate of Oreos there. She is developing a crush on Eric, who she loathes, who she cannot stand. And she assumes that, of course, Eric will hate her back. But what they find in this time of preparing for their debate is that they're having really wonderful, kind feelings towards each other. And the debate day comes, and they are friends, and they even experience and share a little chaste kiss with each other. And then the debate is over, and Wendy announces to Eric, "Ah, I can return to hating you now. I don't have those feelings for you. You must be so relieved as well. And Eric, yeah, sure, Wendy, screw you, I think he says. And she walks off. And in one moment, the final moment, what is for me actually, and I've seen pretty much every South Park episode that has ever been, the most moving moments of any of those episodes, Eric Cartman by himself puts his head down. And just walks off on his own. He's heartbroken. Perhaps most heartbroken especially viewing it as an adult, because I see it as an opportunity he had to move beyond the image of himself as the profane little boy and perhaps to want deeper connections. When we find ourselves at one of these moments, I hope we just don't sigh and move on with our lives as business as usual, but really pay attention. There's an ancient Gaelic story about a man named King Okade, who has five sons. And it's very much one of these traditional fables. Joseph Campbell writes about it. I first heard the story from a guy named Saki Santorelli, who's a mindfulness teacher and a mindfulness instructor. And in the story, in this fable, in this ancient fable, each of the five sons is sent away on a quest. And at some point in the quest, they come upon a well and they are desperately thirsty in this quest and they want to drink from the well. But the well is being guarded by an ancient ancient old old woman as old as dirt 
and looks like dirt. Big, huge pot belly and gnarled skin and knobby knees and hair matted down and filthy. An image that repels the first four sons because she says, if you want to get to this water, this well, I am the guardian of it and you must kiss me. And the four sons say, "Uh uh-uh, and walk away in search of water elsewhere. But the fifth son, not only does he kiss her, he fully embraces her. And in that moment, he sees she is transformed into a vision of beauty unlike anything he has ever seen before. And he can drink deeply from the well, and she imparts one final golden nugget to him. She says, you will rule someday and I will give you this royal rule that you must always greet the unwanted with kindness and with love. Unlike your brothers who treated me with fear and disgust. It is liberating when truth is spoken to the power of our ego and the false image we have of ourselves and of life starts to crack. This is one of the central paradoxes. In the Western spiritual traditions, you see it in the what they call the three great religions of the book, Christianity, Judaism and Islam. In each of those traditions, there is a teaching that comes from the Latin. Maybe some of you heard it or went to a school that was titled with it, Imago Dei. You've heard it perhaps before. It's translated into in the image of God, in the image of the deity. We are made, all of us, every single one of us. And yet each of these traditions, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, take great pains to say also this. God doesn't have an image and don't make one. Allow it to remain unseen. I love that paradox. Some people would say, well, that just proves that it's false because two things that oppose each other can't be true at the same time. But paradox is a deeper truth. I believe that all theology at its deepest level really isn't about God. It's about who we aspire to be as human beings. So for me, this paradox of we are all made in the image of, and yet there is no image at the same time. You know what that's trying to teach us how to do? How to love unconditionally. Because we, if we can love and love something that finally has no image, no one final image, no one thing that we can say, this is it, all your hopes can rest here. If we can love in that way, we will learn to see an imageless image everywhere it is. And to know, like a deep well, it cannot be exhausted. To be able to see that is to perceive what the Christian tradition calls the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That we cannot see the primary image, but we can experience love and compassion and gentleness. Thich Nhat Hanh, relating his own tradition of Buddhism to the Christian tradition, says, in those moments when we are fully mindful and present and occupying our lives, we no longer need to cling to any conceptual ideas. In that moment, we simply allow ourselves to be in the spirit of compassion and love. In our own tradition, in Unitarian Universalism, this is what Emerson simply called the oversoul. That part of the whole that is a part of our lives. That part that he said there is the wise silence, always the wise silence, the universal beauty to which part, every part and particle of ourselves 
is related. How do we practice this? How do we practice staying in touch with an imageless image and not confuse an idea that we have about ourselves or life for the depth of life itself? I went on retreats at the end of October with a person some of you know or have read, Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun. And most of it actually was snowed out. I couldn't even get there. But I attended the first night. And in that introduction, the wonderful, beautiful nun introduced an idea or two ideas from a writer named Edward de Bono, who was a physician and inventor. He said there are two kinds of logic in life. One is rock logic and the other is water logic. Most of the time we operate according to rock logic. Rock logic says hard, fast rules, clear delineations. I am me, you are you, we have fixed boundaries, things in life are settled. But water logic is very different. Water logic, like water, flows. It takes on many different shapes. It is always changing, it is always fluid, and it always is connected to some larger whole. Now we need both rock logic and water logic in our lives thinking of one scenario in which we need both that moment that some of us have already experienced in our lives and some of us will experience and some of us have known through the lives of people we have loved that moment in the doctor's office when that diagnosis is made and yes it is cancer rock logic will give us the diagnosis yes the test came back but water logic will reveal the meaning of the disease to us. Rock logic can cure a disease. I mean, I am very glad that there is rock logic because it cured the incipient stages of my father's bladder cancer that we found he had two months ago. Rock logic is not a bad thing. But if rock logic can cure, only water logic can heal. Because water logic will tell us and invite us to relate to our experience no matter how sometimes difficult and scary it is. Water logic will heal us by teaching us that yes, even in difficult circumstances, we can, like the flow of the water in the river, adapt to moments when we hit the shoals. I love the song from Peter Mayer. The UU musician, we do his song Holy Now very often here. And in it, he describes someone who is questing for God. Questing for God as a rock. Solid, unchanging, and you can just cling to it. But the name of the song is God is a River. And eventually, sometimes we have to let go of that rock. Because it's not life. It's just a stopping point. Each of us in many ways every day is given a choice to do what A. Powell Davies, the great Unitarian clergyman of 60, 70 years ago, said that we can do. That life is merely, wonderfully a chance to grow a soul. Or we can protect and project an image. This makes a real difference as to whatever we choose to do. Just imagine... I mean, so many of us are every day horrified, nauseated 
by the details of what we have heard coming out of Penn State and the Jerry Sandusky tragedy, awfulness, atrocity. Whatever ultimately is the outcome of the leading legal proceedings, none of us can say. But this we can say with certainty is that for years, for over a decade, something awful appeared to be going on. And also for years, well over a decade, whether it was Joe Paterno or the former president or any of a host of people who had some power in that system, who probably did, I would bet dollars to donuts, say to themselves at some point, I have an image to protect. We have an image to protect. And so did not choose to investigate what may have been happening, whatever the outcome was going to be. When we invest ourselves as an image, any image, and says this is life and this is all of life, we will cause ourselves harm because we will not be able to adapt to the life that is bigger than any image. If instead we choose to grow our souls every day, we will know that we will face fearful situations with courage. And we will know that we are really following through on the best news, very, very good news from our tradition, that life is a chance to grow a soul. And as we dig deeper into that reality, we see, as Emerson said, that we are a part of the oversoul already. There is nothing we can do to sever ourselves from it. Just as Steve Jobs said in his own different words, we're naked already. The image and the illusion is that we have something to lose. It does not make our lives easy all the time. But we know how good this work is to cultivate a life that is living beyond a superficial image of what life really is. I think of Steve Jobs' final words, his reported final words, my final words here today. Do you know those? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I hope we're not saving those for our final words. I hope that we can say today, our oh wow, right now. And live beyond the image of what we perceive our life to be. And in letting it go, discover what life really is. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of the imageless image. Of the flowing, healing waters of life. That we can drink at any moment if only we would so choose. May we commit ourselves to the vow that there is no such thing as an idea of life. There is just life. Beckoning us, challenging us, inviting us. Go deep. Drink fully. Live well. Grow your soul. Amen.